When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the well-endowed edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here with Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello. Hey, everyone. And we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia because it is the biggest news of the week. The unbelievable purge that Prince Mohammed bin Sultan has affected in the desert kingdom. It's kind of amazing what he's managed to do. We will talk about that. We will talk about Wilbur Ross. Um, it's kind of a big deal when the Commerce Secretary has a massive scandal, and he has managed to have like three of them in one week. So the fact that he even still has a job is kind of amazing. We're going to talk about that. And one of those scandals came from the Paradise Papers. You may have seen the Paradise Papers, which also will give us a lovely little segue for the Felix and Anna Great Endowment debate, which was teased last week, um, shall continue in its own segment yes. this week. And we will actually try and take it slowly and not make any shortcuts and try and work out who's saying what, because it's an important issue. And and there's probably going to be a Slate Plus segment, too. We might talk about Ether. Or maybe we'll talk about Cutter. We'll, you'll have to listen to it to find out. We'll pick something. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about something. We'll figure something out by the end of this episode. There, there, there is some, there is some, there's been a busy week. There's a lot to talk about. talk about Ubit. So that can be found in your feed if you're a listener to Slate Plus, or else it can be found at slate.com slash money plus. Now, Anna, tell me about the heir apparent to the Saudi throne, Prince Mohammed bin Sultan, the 32-year-old, I don't know, like, last, prince. Last we were talking Cal- about him, he was going to build a $500 billion <laughs> city in the desert. Yeah, yes. so, okay, so this And now we find thing. that he's maybe just going to take other people's money. <laughs> That's how he's going to build it. It works pretty well that way. So, okay, so, like, we... We had a whole segment about this because he had Davos in the desert yes. and he was talking about Neom and everyone was like, ha ha, isn't this funny? And then it stopped being funny for a lot <laughs> yeah, of yeah, people. Yeah, and got being real. Yeah. So 
it's actually funny because the place where they held Davos in the desert is the Ritz, where they are now holding the people who are being held prisoner. <laughs> okay, so let's back up. What, what so, the hell is going on here? So essentially, this is clearly a consolidation of power, where it's so, so many dozens of princes and um, very wealthy individuals have been arrested on corruption charges. Now, talking about corruption in Saudi Arabia is a little odd because there is essentially no line between the state and the elites. It's it's an absolute kingdom. The idea that like the king or a prince can steal from the state is a little bit weird when the Saudi royal family is the state. Right, exactly. Yeah. And this is important also because ever since Mohammed bin Salman kind of pushed his... Um, his cousin out of the way so he could become second in line. He has been arresting a number of people, opponents, uh, people supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. But this was really a very massive purge. And one of the individuals that has been involved is um, Al Walid Ben Talal, who was Prince Al Walid. Yes. Now, he, like, if you know any Saudi billionaire, you probably know <laughs> Prince Al Walid. Yes. He's the one with the jaunty Twitter account who gets into fights with Donald Trump. Yes. He's the one who, like, you know, loves getting photographed by, you know, glossy magazines in front of his Bloomberg screens. And, and now he's in prison. And right. he's the one who fancies himself the Warren Buffett of Saudi Arabia, basically. Yes. And what is interesting is he has actually been very supportive of Mohammed bin Salman's reform measures. And they're cousins. Well, everyone. They're cousins. all cousins. But they're, yeah. they're actually like first cousins. Yeah. They're yeah, very they're, close yeah. cousins. So... But to me, that's why this is actually interesting, because at this point, we're not just talking about, you know, the religious extremists who might oppose the reform measures of Mohammed bin Salman. We're talking about essentially almost everyone with a tremendous amount of wealth or power. So he, yes. he arrested the head of the National Guard, which yes. was the one arm of the military he didn't already control. Mm -hmm. He arrested basically the people who were in charge of the media and the telecoms um, so that he had complete control of, of messaging and communications, which is one of the reasons it's been very hard to get details on exactly what's going on, because he's not providing those details and there's no one else providing any details. And he arrested Prince Al-Walid and other various billionaire types um, because, you know, that is a powerful person. And this really looks like a good old-fashioned purge where anyone with any kind of power gets rounded up, herded into the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, and um, forced to subsist on room service for the foreseeable future. So, I, I have a question. I'm Saudi Arabia is not my area of expertise, and I've, I've just been kind of watching the news about this this week, I'm just baffled about it. So, is this something that we should be frightened of? Is this, like, yes. is this Saudi Arabia heading for, like, full-on banana republic in the debt without the bananas or is it I mean it it's always essentially bad. I think this is what's interesting because there is the one school of thought which is that well but Mohammed bin Salman is really into reforms and he wants to make this the new UAE. I saw Eli Lake at Bloomberg uh use uh, like voice that opinion which made me think it was probably wrong. <laughs> that was yeah. sort of so I mean okay. So, so, yeah, I, my, why my, is that wrong? My my feeling is that it is entirely 
correct to say that he is a reformer. He want you know he wants to allow women to drive. He wants to build Neom, which is going to be a much more kind of secular city. Um, although apparently it still won't allow alcohol, um, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, he is clearly um, a very hard-fisted autocrat. And I think the real problem with all of this is that reforms are all well and good and foreign investors, and he definitely wants a lot of foreign investment, foreign investors love reforms, but what they don't like is capricious, all-powerful leaders yeah. who can who can you know round people up and put them in jail for any or no reason. Yeah, two things about this. One, foreign investors are going to be very frightened when you have someone who's coming in and potentially just expropriating money from people because he's doing that now to people who probably did get the money through embezzlement. But what's going to stop him in 10 years from he gets angry at a U.S. company and saying, well, I'm taking all your assets. So that's part of it, where this is going to spook foreign investors. And then on the other hand, when you talk about reforms in Saudi Arabia, I don't think people sometimes fully understand how the Saudi state is currently structured. You you have a population where two thirds of those who have jobs work for the state. You essentially pay no taxes. You don't have to pay almost anything for energy. And part of the reform measures in the 2030 plan that MBS has put out has been about increasing taxes, reducing all of those subsidies, essentially. And the idea that you're going to be able to do that without angering the population at the same time that you're angering the religious establishment, which has been the thing that since the 18th century has given, has essentially been supporting the House of Saud. That's how. So that's so, the Wahhabis. Well, and, yeah, that's, so, and that's the, the, the very, that's the tension, which has always been the deeply problematic underlying tension in Saudi Arabia is that the country has been run by the Al Saud family. Yeah. Um, who, you know, control it. But they're small, you know, they're a tiny proportion so of they the need total the support family. Of, yeah. And the way that they have the, the way that they came to power and the way that they kept their power was by aligning with these bonkers fundamentalist yeah. Wahhabists. Right. And now there is this um, gap opening up between MBS on the one hand and the Wahhabists on the other, and no one knows how that plays uh, so, out. So it sounds like if for someone who was interested in reforming Saudi Arabia in a stable way, they would have to either pick religious reforms or economic reforms because you need one of those power bases. And it seems like you're saying he's kind of trying to do both at the same time and alienating everybody. Exactly. He's essentially trying to like overnight reform the country in a way that there, I, I see no path where with the Saudi population, this leads to a good result. So, someone also just said that, or some people are trying to kind of analogize this to a U.S. situation, or, or, and they said it was almost like if Jared Kushner <laughs> like somehow yeah. became vice president and then just tried to execute a coup, but like in the most obviously inept way you could. Like, I don't is that know if accurate? I don't that... know if it's obviously inept, and I think okay. that MBS is much smarter than Jared Kushner, and okay. he's thought this through, and it was done in a much more effective way than I believe Jared Kushner could pull <laughs> off anything. <laughs> that, that This is probably true. <laughs> but so. So it's not just like a callow young guy doing it. No, actually, who, I think it kind of is. I, I'm, I'm okay. actually going to push back a little on that. I do think this is a very wealthy young man who essentially was able to like live as a playboy and then 
began to very quickly gain power. He has a dying father. You know, again, he was able to kind of usurp other people. He does not have a tremendous amount of experience. It seems as though he thinks he can just poof overnight change this country. And I think it's frankly because of his inexperience. Also, we haven't even brought up Yemen, Qatar. Yeah, he's got multiple things. He's got a, a lot of things he's juggling right yeah, now. Yeah, a few. Yeah, and why, wait, so question. Does any of this connect to why he seems to have taken the prime minister of Lebanon hostage? <laughs> yes, it does, actually. Okay. Because yeah. this is all about Iran and Saudi Arabia. Wait, wait, wait. So uh, just a little background for people who somehow missed this story. And <laughs> since the news has been dominated in the U.S., mostly by sexual predators. Um, so apparently uh, the prime minister of Lebanon was just just decided to resign from Saudi Arabia and like showed up on a video saying, I'm doing this of my own free will. And here's a newspaper to show you the date. Yeah, like, I'm afraid of being assassinated like a predecessor in, in, in Lebanon, you know, Hezbollah's bra- Like what is like, but no one really believes this and his own party is saying this isn't, this can't possibly yeah. be real. What, how does that connect to all this? Because <clears throat> Saudi Arabia and MBS believe that um, the Hariri and they have not cracked down on Hezbollah because Hezbollah is obviously in the Lebanese government and Hezbollah is connected with Iran. Okay. So this all goes back to it's the same thing when you're talking about Qatar. It all goes back. And, and when you're talking about Yemen, it all goes back to Iran and Saudi Arabia. These two enormous regional powers who are now, I believe, potentially a fight that has always kind of been simmering now seems to be escalating, which in this region is extraordinarily dangerous. I just love that his one trick is like whether it is a rival a rival oligarch in uh, in Saudi Arabia or a foreign <laughs> leader is just to hold them up in the wrist. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's because if you've ever been to Riyadh, that is the only place you stay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I've never stayed in the Ritz. I feel I've missed out. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's let's talk about Wilbur Ross. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Wilbur. So when... Um, Donald Trump was putting his cabinet together, uh, every, you know, and everyone was talking about all of these billionaires in the Trump administration. Um, Wilbur Ross was always at the top of the list. Yes. He was like the really, really rich guy who became commerce secretary for no obvious reason except for that he was a billionaire. Well, oh, no, there were there were lots of obvious reasons why he made sense for Trump's commerce secretary, but we can get into that. We can um, get into that. Yeah, but. One of the, you know, tenets of Trumpism, I suppose, is that if you're unbelievably rich, then you can't be bribed. You don't really worry so much about your own self-interest because you've already made it. And so now you can turn around and, like, just worry about the little guy. Yes. And it turns out that Wilbur Ross has a whole bunch of interests in, like, international shipping, which weren't very disclosed when he became commerce secretary that he has interests in russia which weren't particularly disclosed when he became commerce secretary and that all of the statements that he was making as recently as a couple of weeks ago to forbes magazine about his billionaire status were to not to put too fine a point on it 
lies. Yeah, he was not a billionaire. And the thing about Wilbur Ross is that when people were uh, writing about him in the context of the, the Trump campaign, it was he was almost always described as billionaire tycoon or like billionaire, like industrial baron Wilbur Ross. Like that was just his reputation. So the fact that um, that reputation was basically all ba- it was almost all based on a, a error by a Forbes reporter years and years ago is kind of amazing. But um I think so. We have to. How are we going to take this? Like, so let's. Let, let's where do we start? start here? Let's There's start so with. Much. You let's start with the shipping. Start with the shipping. Yeah. Yeah. So Wilbur Ross, when he joined the Trump administration, uh, started divesting a lot of his assets. Um, but weirdly, and no one really fully seemed to get why he d- he held on to his stakes in these shipping companies. Just the- and, and and I and I think one of the things going on here to take like the. Yeah, fifty thousand foot view is that if you're Wilbur Ross, it's really easy to divest yourself of two billion fictional dollars that you never owned in the first place. Yeah, and it's actually quite hard to divest yourself of shipping companies and stuff, which you really actually want the money from, and potentially at a loss. I yeah. Think, yeah, yeah, exactly. So he had these interests, and it, it was. You know, at the time, his excuse was, you know, we've done this research, and as far as we can tell, uh, commerce doesn't regulate global shipping in any way, um, and therefore, I have no conflict of interest uh, by holding on to these these companies. Yeah, I mean, like, when you think of global shipping, you never really think of commerce. Yeah, Yeah. you never think of trade. (laughs) And, And why this was obviously weird is that the Commerce Department plays a very important role in in regulating trade. And so, yeah, there's potential conflict of interest there. But anyway, it was Trump. There were bigger fish to fry. <laughs> so this kind of slid by. Um, so the Paradise Papers were released recently. Or it's a, and as again, these are this trove of documents uh, from a offshore uh, a law firm that specialized in basically offshore tax havens. So it kind of gave us yet another peek, sort of like the Panama Papers, into the doings of the global elite um, and the global plutocratic class. Um, and what one of the things that came out of that was that Ross's shipping, one of Ross's shipping companies had a lot of business with a Russian en- or its top client was a Russian energy firm uh, owned by members of Putin's inner circle. So, OK, like I would just like, OK, any weird, Ellen, I actually covered Sieber okay. for a while. So Sieber so actually... C- so is this Russian energy firm. Yeah, it's a um, a gas processing and petrochemical company. Yes. And so... I realize it sounds really bad when you say this company is owned by Putin's son-in-law and a sanctioned individual. Yeah, it and does. I'm not saying that's not somewhat bad, but also like if you're dealing with major Russian companies, they're all going to have ties to right. the state. Which is yeah. exactly the why problem. you shouldn't be dealing no. with major Russian companies. And that's totally fair. And I don't disagree with it. I just think some of the way that this has been reported as though you're, it's like so close to Putin. I'm it like, is. Mm. Everything, everything in Russia when yes. it's a big money thing is is so close to Putin. I don't think that's wrong at all. Now, like, you can say that that would be true of just about any big Russian company, which it probably would be, but that in no way mitigates the fact that Wilbur Ross has these incredibly close commercial relationships with essentially the Putin regime. Although it is like he, I'm not, I'm not going to try to defend Wilbur Ross because I do think he's a massive conflict of interest. But he did disclose Navigator Holdings. He just didn't disclose Navigator Holdings customer, which it seems odd that he would have. But also the disclosure of Navigator Holdings was, let's just say, incomplete. Like yeah. if you if you disclose, I have a, com- I own a company with the word holdings in the name, then like the first obvious question is, well, you know, what does it hold and what 
do those holdings do and are there any conflicts in those holdings? And he seemed very happy to not answer those questions. It's just also the kind of thing that in a normal presidential administration would have come up in the internal vetting process. Someone would have said, hey, what is this company? Who are its clients? I mean, all of that would have um, been looked into. And that just did not happen in the Trump administration. Or if it did, they just turned a blind eye. But most people assumed there just wasn't. Yeah. Like, and, and vetting. I don't disagree that this is obviously, again, a conflict of interest. Obviously, this is something that should have been disclosed. All of this. I just think trying to make this a Russia story I just don't really. No, think this it is, is a Wilbur Ross story. Yeah, yeah, and and it's and and the fact that of all of the foreign regimes, that Wilbur Ross's company that he failed to divest himself of could have wound up being involved with, like Russia, is the worst for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah, totally, but again, if he's involved in gas shipping, it's not surprising that it's going to be involved Which is why he shouldn't be involved in gas shipping. I totally agree. Yeah. And so, and it's not just, it's not just the Russia story. I mean, you said this is a Wilbur Ross story. I think that's right. He also had this second shipping company, uh, Diamond Holding, and that has a lot of interests in Chinese trade, which, I mean, again, talk about another hot button topic issue that actually as Commerce Secretary, he is going to be directly involved in with, yeah. uh, you know, deciding whether or not there should be tariffs put on uh, ch- some Chinese goods, perhaps. But so, so, so like, yeah, how on earth does the U.S. Com- I mean, does the U.S. Commerce Secretary wind up with all of these conflicts? And I guess the question which I have for Jordan yeah. is like, as as a local, you know, politics provincial, pundit, yes. Um, <laughs> w- it is obvious to me that under any other administration, A, he would never have got this job in the first place, but B, you know, with all of these revelations, he would be out of a job right now. It is also obvious to me that the Trump administration is not any other administration. So is it actually conceivable that he survives all this? Um, yeah, I think it is. The and we're going to talk about this in a minute. I think if anything, the, the reason he might get kicked out of Trump administration is because he's not really a billionaire. <laughs> um, he might just lose Donald's respect. But um, I think you have to go back to kind of you have to think about who Wilbur Ross is and his connection to Trump. Right. Um, they met back in the early 90s when Trump was going through bankruptcy or his companies was going were going through bankruptcy. And Wilbur Ross uh Base was on the other end of the table dealing with that restructuring. And in the end, Trump was pretty happy with the deal he got out of that. He he survived. Um, and their relationship goes back that far. And then during the campaign, Wilbur Ross stepped up as a economic advisor to Trump. And again, Trump didn't have a lot of respectable people around him. Wilbur Ross was arguably the most respectable Wall Street guy who had attached himself, or it seemed like that, who had attached himself to the Trump campaign at that point. Um, and he was working on things like his infrastructure plan or trying to say oh, why. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or he was like, he was he was the one who was trying to score how Trump's economic plan was going to, him and Peter Navarro were the ones who were um, writing about how it was going to create all this wonderful growth. I mean, he really went to bat for Trump. Um, and he was looked at, at as sort of, I think, by the press as an adult in the room, right? He was one, someone who filled that role because, again, he had this reputation as successful billionaire industrialist who at least was like a savvy guy who um, and so he, he, he lent that sort of aura to Trump. So he, you know, it's I think um, in a way, you know, if it were just the shipping stuff, I think Trump wouldn't care so much. The one thing that I think would get to him is that, oh, like. 
this guy has actually been lying about his wealth the entire time. And unlike, that makes, unlike Donald Trump. Well, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's like your own worst fear about yourself. Exactly. You see it manifested in somebody else. And like so you, that may get him kicked you, out. Yeah. So, and well, that's, no, I, I, will, so I will jump in here and yeah. say that like by the Joe Weisenthal definition, Wilbur Ross is a billionaire. Well, I forget. What is the... Basically, if you if you're worth over two hundred million dollars, you're a billionaire. I we should talk about that another time. I'm <laughs> <We> curious. <laughs> Maybe that's the Slate Plus segment. Yeah. But so I think we need to just explain. Like, how is it that he came to be? How is it that people even thought he was a billionaire in the first place? And basically, what happened was when he did his first really big deal, he sold this steel conglomerate that he had put together in the early Bush era uh, for four point five billion dollars. A Forbes reporter came calling and thought that all of the money that got made on that deal was essentially his. And just like screwed up when it turned out most of it was actually his investors' money. And Wilbur Ross... <laughs> Which says something about the Forbes reporter. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, Wilbur Ross didn't really correct him. He was like, he was actually kind of like, bad. He, he, he kind of tried to play down. He's like, all right, well, if you really want to put me on this list, fine. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not looking for the publicity. Um, and then for years on, they just kept including him and, and kind of adjusting his wealth based on the initial valuation. And, you know, so he's always had the, this outsized, you know, reputation as a brilliant deal guy who could like make money off these failing industries, which also was part of the reason they he became Commerce Secretary. And, and also, I mean, this is this comes back to the whole thing about Prince Al-Walid as well and the power of the Forbes list. Yes. And mm-hmm. at some point, we should probably just have a whole segment on the power yeah. of the Forbes list. But there are certain people who would include not only Wilbur Ross, but also Prince Al-Walid, who spend an insane amount of time and effort trying to maximize their wealth for the purposes of the Forbes list. Just like Donald Trump. Yep. And Donald Trump. And those people just really fascinate me. Well, so... And there, there's a lesson about that, which is when you are on that list, it is a giant advertisement for yourself. And that's what it seems to have been for Wilbur Ross's business. It helped him find clients. Um, his name was on there, and that lent to his reputation as a, a great fund manager, even if um, it wasn't totally merited. And I think that actually changes our perspective on who this guy is and and why he is in the Trump administration. Because for a long time, people did ask, like, why are you leaving your fu- your super successful fund to work for this guy. You know, the the, the Scaramucci question. Y- yeah. Yes, exactly. And well, it turns out that Wilbur Ross was not as rich as everybody thought. He had been sort of living um, based on, I mean, he'd been living a lie, essentially, it seems like. And some people have now gone and looked back and realized he was actually having trouble raising money for new funds. It looked like his career was kind of petering out, and so he could go and hitch his wagon to Trump, and that would start a new chapter. And so you make it look like you're you you've had it made, and now you're like giving back to public service when, in fact, you kind of this is your one opportunity to to get out with your dignity intact. And the ironic thing, and and we, I will just end this by saying. I mean, obviously, Anthony Scaramucci did not get out with his dignity intact, but he didn't even get out with the money that he was promised almost a year ago now by the Chinese and the Venezuelans for his company. That deal still hasn't closed. Oh, really? Yeah. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, so Anna. Yes. There's another tiny little footnote to the Paradise Papers, and there are so many stories in the Paradise Papers. We could be talking about the Queen of England. Yes, we could. We could be talking Bono. about Bono. Yeah. We could and and basically all of these um stories are the same, which is rich person has some kind of offshore vehicle which allows them to avoid taxes. And buried in this huge pile of Paradise Paper story is um, Yale University and various other large university endowments have offshore vehicles which allow them to evade taxes, which came as a surprise to me because I was under the impression that they didn't pay taxes in the first place. This is what most people think. Oh, wow. So I'm actually surprised that you were surprised. So this has been well known for yeah, a while. Like there was- when you, so like back in like when Romney was running, right? And people were asking about like, what's the purpose of an offshore tax haven? If you called a tax expert, they would say, well, actually one of the main things is so that universities can invest in private equity. Like that was literally one of the first answers, like first yeah. things off anyone's tongue when I would talk to them about this. It, it was just like a well-known fact that, yeah, of course. Yeah, and just, just to explain, so most of the investment earnings that endowments get are tax exempt. However, they do have to pay um, taxes on unrelated business income. Yep. And Investment income that they gain through debt financed mm-hmm. investments, i.e., private equity and hedge funds, they would have to pay taxes on. So they set up these blocker corporations. The hedge fund play, pays the blocker corporation. The blocker corporation pays the endowment. The endowment doesn't have to pay taxes on it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing, but basically, if the endowment buys a large chunk of a company just by buying its shares in the American stock market. That is not, they don't have to pay taxes on that. But if the endowment buys a large chunk of a company through like a private equity vehicle, then they do have to pay tax on it. And let's not go into the reasons why, but the way they avoid that tax is by setting up, they buy a large chunk of a different company, which is actually a offshore vehicle. And then, that, yeah, anyway. So we have... A whole bunch of tax avoidance by tax exempt organizations, which I just, which I just find it, hilarious. It, it's not a small amount, probably. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, uh, Although, someone, someone is like looked at, it and it's like fifty three percent of the assets and big endowments are in what you call an alternative. Of course, investments. they are because that's and the only place you're getting those returns. And a lot of that is private equity and hedge funds. Right, well, but I also well, I mean, no. that's that's not the only place you're getting. No, those in returns. fact, if over the past five years, the returns in private um, equity and hedge funds have been much lower than the returns in the stock market. And the reason why you have so much endowment money in private equity and hedge funds is more or less entirely thanks to one guy named David Swenson at Yale, who early on put a lot of money into these illiquid vehicles and made a lot of money. And now everyone else in the endowment world was like, ooh, we should follow that and has generally not had the same success. Yeah, although I am going to disagree with you a little bit there because a lot of money was put into hedge funds. Then the hedge funds haven't been doing as well. So then the money has been put in private equity where they are actually getting a lot of those returns. So Either way, you've got these tax-exempt organizations right. avoiding taxes. We live in a one giant farce. Yeah. So- although, can I just say, I'm sorry, there's a part of me that's like, Either tax all of their investment income or don't tax their investment yes. income. I actually think this is a stupid rule. Well, so yeah, no, we can all agree that it's a stupid rule. I, I the, quest, the question which I have is 
I actually disagree with the stupid rule, but you have to go back into the history of it. It was designed to deal with. Um, yes, it was basically designed to deal with real estate yeah. scams um, that you a nonprofit and a for profit company could yeah. kind of hitch up and do a lease back or a deal where they would both benefit. And nobody wanted this, especially because it could lead to nonprofits just owning a lot of the real estate in the US, which has sort of happened anyway, if you've ever seen NYU or Columbia's <laughs> campus. But so there no, are so, reasons. So, but for no, it. but let's let's actually not yeah. talk like about this. Yeah. The New York City property tax in you know revenues are being slashed as NYU buys up half of downtown New York. And the minute it gets owned, the minute property is owned by NYU rather than, you know, a, a corporation or a landlord or an individual, suddenly NYU stops paying taxes on that. And that's really bad for New York City. And it's this ridiculous artificial advantage for NYU, which has just become this enormous landowner. Um, and there's no good reason for it. And there are a huge number of distortions which happen when um, nonprofit institutions have these tax breaks that everyone else don't have. And one of those distortions is the whole existence of these multi-billion dollar endowments, which, again, like, there's no good reason for any university to have tens of billions of dollars in an endowment. That's and completely yet that's wrong. What you have. That, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and now it's time for us to reconvene. It's time for the debate part. We've been waiting for. Okay, so Anna, why are why are you so defensive of because, the massive college endowment? Because endowments are long term funds set up to fund institutions in perpetuity. That is why they are set up. They have worked very well at doing. As okay, doing that. so let's let's stop there that is definitely what they have become over time and in a kind of corrosive and un unhelpful and bad way um that let's just like rewind a little bit and ask ourselves like how does endowment come to be in the first place you set up a university and it has income and it has expenses and sometimes the expenses are higher than the income and it needs to spend a bit of extra money. So it goes along to donors and it says, I need a bit of extra money and the donors give it the extra money. And the problem with that model is that donations can be lumpy. And so in order to smooth things out a bit, you basically get the donors not to just give directly to cover the deficit in any given year, but you get the donors to give into an endowment which can hold that money so that in you know bad years, that endowment can spend a bit more. In good years, that endowment can spend a bit less. In that model, there is no particular reason why the absolute size of the endowment should be constant, why it should go up, whether that No, whether because the point when people... Yeah, no, I'm sorry. When... The, the, when people give money to an endowment, they give money to an endowment specifically with restrictions on that money, saying that the principal cannot decline in value and the income has to be used for a specific purpose. That's, that is how endowments are set up. That is how if you look at like not true. Ha, no, yes, it is. If you look at Harvard, Harvard does not have one endowment. Harvard has 13000 individual endowments that all have restrictions on how the money is used. So first of all, endowments are not piggy banks. Endowments have to be used in specific ways. And the mandate of every single endowment is that it needs to maintain the purchasing power of the principal. And I guess the question is not, like, I mean, so like that, I, I'm just going to push back on that. What eventually happened 
and I feel it's just completely wrong to sort of blame the donors for this, which is what you're doing. They're like, well, there are these donors and they put all of these restrictions on this money. So the poor universities are forced to maintain this and it's not even up to them. Like, that's not how it what happened. What happened is that over time, these endowments started growing and they started growing initially just because certain large universities that foremost amongst them Harvard, but also Yale and Princeton and Stanford, um, you know, started getting a lot of very large donations. And those donations grew to substantial sums. And then they realized they were sitting on large amounts of money as those donations kept on coming in. And then after David Swenson arrives at Yale, the other way that the endowments start growing is because they start investing in sort of risky ways and illiquid ways and they discover well, no, hedge but that's, funds. That's, they're actually, suppo- I mean, okay, look, if you're looking, okay, first of all, if you're talking about whether or not they're res- investing in riskier or less risky assets, an endowment is the type of fund that should be invest- investing in riskier assets because it is a long time horizon, it has fewer liquidity needs, and it has a, has a benign tax situation. So that is actually exactly the type of fund that should be investing in riskier assets, first of all. And again, it's not as though these endowments aren't used for to fund universities. Universities are incredibly expensive to run. In 2016, Harvard spent close to $2 billion out of their endowment. So these endowments are used. But the idea is that you're, you're using the income that is generated. But you're not supposed to be reducing the principle of the money that people have given. And, and again, mostly that's actually written into when how the money is given. And that is... And, and, so, and, and that's wanna, mostly not written into the money that's given. That... Often, the, the, essentially what happened is that as the endowments became professionalized and as the highest paid individuals at any university started becoming the endowment managers, um, they the endowment managers realized exactly what was good for them. And this is true of any institution, that all institutions, when they become big, start to self-perpetuate. And suddenly the endowment managers and all of the consultants and all of the seven-figure employees started realizing that they were onto a very good thing and they started encouraging people to think in this way of give us your money and give us instructions to never actually spend it and we'll just spend the income and that makes sense somehow. And then that idea became institutionalized to the point at which you get people like Anna saying, but this is how it's supposed to be. So, wait, well, I, How I are feel you like supposed I, to so fund I, a university if you're just continuing to allow the purchasing power to just decline and decline well, I, and decline? I think I, no, you, no, can, no. you can fund a university's operations through things like tuition if you want to. But, or, or, or donations. donations. But they, Felix, you I, don't I, possibly have enough. I, I, I want to... I well, now you now you wouldn't. At this well, no, point, I mean, well, that's not true. Most universities do not have yeah. endowments. It's a handful of large universities have big endowments. The rest of them all seem to manage somehow. So, Felix, I, I want to ask a, a question because a kind of big picture one which is like fundamentally what makes you uncomfortable about the existence of these huge endowments is it just that it get, creates these nonprofits that can then gobble up a city is it just concentrated wealth i have my own discomforts which i will get into but i'm, I'm curious i just kind of want the headline version of yours because i'm not totally clear on it so it is for a long time it has become obvious that harvard you know stanford and a few others are basically multi-billion dollar hedge funds with an educational institution attached and the educational the main role of the educational institution starts to become like the excuse that the hedge fund needs in order to maintain its non-profit status and the tail starts wagging the dog see i don't know so that has never been my concern so much The, the i've always kind of 
bristled at these big endowments because we heavily subsidize them essentially by giving all these tax breaks to uh, nonprofit universities, and that gives them the ability to just, just stack up wealth. In the meantime, um, we don't give nearly as large subsidies to these poor private inst- or these uh, poor public institutions, and so th- it seems like there's this inequity. And people have looked at this. Essentially, if you look at all the tax benefits that these, uh, you know. Uh, well-endowed private it's, uh, universities have versus the tax subsidies the public ones have. It's it's just there's no contest. Princeton yeah, gets a then, lot more money than you know state U, and so to me that's always been seemed like a problem, and and it could be addressed by maybe taxing universe uh, like taxing Princeton and giving it to Oklahoma State or whatever. Um, but I've sort of started to shift my position on this a little bit in the Trump era, and I think there's something to be said for having. Um, extremely wealthy, self-sustaining institutions that um, in the end are a net good for society, even if they have a downside, even if they also create their own problems. Harvard is a net good. NYU is probably a net good. And having something that is apart from the state and can just sustain itself, no matter what happens essentially in the government, isn't necessarily that frightening. And and that's fine. I have no problem with private universities existing. Um, the question is not whether they should exist or whether they're a net good. The question is, why are we giving them these billions of dollars of tax expenditures um, and these people in particular? And why are we why have we set up a system whereby it's the richest and least neediest institutions which get the biggest tax expenditures? I, well, I think, because they have, I mean, I would argue, though, that, I mean, a lot of the money, and especially some of endowments like Harvard, is often, I mean, that is part of how they use to give, you know, student aid. So I, 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 only if you go to Harvard. Only if you go to Harvard. Look, don't get me yeah. wrong. I'm, I don't disagree that I think that we do not have enough money going to state universities and community colleges. And I'm not going to disagree with you about that. And we are spending billions of dollars on Harvard in the form of tax expenditures, and that's fine, which but would you, be put to better use almost anywhere else. Yeah, well, I, I think, well, in a lot of places. So, so right now, for instance, the House uh, Republicans are considering taxing endowments, a very small portion of, of endowment income as part of their bill. And that was a moment that made me kind of sit back and, and go, huh, like this is I, I've written about this. I have said that I would like to see Harvard's endowment taxed, but I don't really want to see it taxed so that you can cut Exxon's taxes. Right. Like, and, 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 yeah, that's and, what's, and, and that's what's happening. And again, now, also, so. I mean, I know you're going to push back on me, but it is true that like also anything you do, if you tax them, if you require a certain spending limit, you are then just increasing the returns that they have to make yeah because they you can yeah. and and, and, that is, and it's not to grow the fund it's to maintain the purchasing power right and and that is the point which i just deeply fundamentally disagree with is this idea that endowments can only ever move in one direction i remember not that long ago when the harvard endowment was 10 billion dollars and everyone said oh my god why does Harvard need a $10 billion endowment? That's crazy. Now the Harvard endowment is $40 billion. And you still have someone like Anna saying, well, it can only go up. It can never go down. No, it's like, no, why can't it go back down to $10 billion? I, uh, again, <laughs> because the mandate of an endowment is to maintain the purchasing power I sound like I know I'm a robot here. Yeah, you sound like a robot because you're not actually answering the question. No, I am answering the question because you cannot maintain an institution forever if the amount of money you're using to, in theory, maintain that forever is declining. Yeah, of course you can. 
And, and, you just change and, the way you're yeah, maintaining it. The, but the I, amount you could, of, okay, you could just the keep amount, spending less and less. Yes, you spend less and less. Sometimes institutions get smaller. Sometimes they get bigger. But do we really that, want... Yeah, well, and, that was, and that comes back to my point, is that actually the idea of Harvard getting smaller over time is not that appealing at a moment when government yeah, itself... Sort but, of but no one is from, no one is saying that Harvard's <laughs> going to get smaller. Like All yeah. I'm saying is that Harvard was uh, was the best university in the world and was in great financial shape when it had $10 billion of endowment. It is not obviously a better university now that it has $40 billion of endowment. And if the, and the endowment has gone up so much well, without any because- obvious benefit that I really don't have any problem with the idea that sometimes it might go down. After all, this endowment is constantly getting inflows from John Paulson writing $400 million checks or whatever. It's not like the only place it can make money is by investment returns. It can also do it the old-fashioned way by going to so, alumni. Yes, and, and, and they do that, and they factor that in when they create their, their spending amounts and when they create their return requirements. It's, it's entirely true. But again, you have to also remember that you know when you're trying to figure out what your return requirements are for this type of fund – you're using, you know, you're using your 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 expenses. You're using your spending, and then you're also using the relevant rate of inflation, which is not just the rate of inflation; it's the rate of inflation in education, which happens to be kind of high. So, there is a reason why they then have had to target higher rates or um, higher rates of return. And I, again, yes, the endowments have you know gone up quite a bit, but that's also been because, like, look at where assets have gone up in the last ten years, pretty much everywhere. So, Felix, another question for you. Do you want Harvard just to spend money down or do you want to take their money? Like, which, which, because I, I personally don't really see the difference in letting Harvard keep its money or spend it on its own students because it's sort of all this. It, it, that's kind of all the same to me. I, I see the argument for taking Harvard's money if you want to use it elsewhere on no, I, state. I, what I, is I it believe, that, my, my belief is that I hate perpetuities. Okay. And I hate foundations which are designed to exist in perpetuity. I hate endowments which are designed to, in Anna's words, maintain perpe- purchasing power in perpetuity. I I especially hate perpetuities which exist only because of their tax-exempt status. And if you are a tax-paying perpetuity, let's say that you're a rich family who owns a bunch of vineyards or timberland or something like that and and you've been paying taxes every year on that and it basically exists in perpetuity and you hand it down to your you know generation after generation that's fine if you are a perpetuity which can only really make sense as a perpetuity because you have this special sweetheart deal from the government and you don't need to pay the same taxes that everyone else has to pay that is wrong and when the result of that is that you wind up getting skewed um, results like NYU taking over downtown Manhattan and with all of the follow-on effects that has for the New York City fisc, I say that no, you shouldn't get special favor for for being a perpetuity because perpetuities are actually bad things to begin with. My only add-on to that, and we don't have to put this on, would be that I think I would have been a lot more sympathetic uh, to your position before we realized that a lot of other fundamental institutions in this country are essentially crumbling and having perpetual ones, uh, perpetual nonprofits that are basically designed to educate and advance knowledge uh, is not the worst thing. Yeah, I think having educations have a means to support themselves. Yeah. 
it just is I, important. At the Felix, I, I at the risk of sounding glib, I think your concerns are a little bit um, twenty thirteen. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Um, Anna. Mine is 969 micrograms per cubic meter. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Hang on a sec. Okay. All right. I've got my my my. So it's about one gram per cubic meter, which is tiny compared to the size of a cubic meter. Yes. Okay. So this is the um, amount of a very dangerous form of particulate matter in the air in Delhi. So I don't know if people have been following um, the story right now in Delhi. I mean, in many Indian cities, the air quality is very bad. Recently, it has gotten so bad. So. Um, the WHO says that you're not supposed to have anything over 25 in terms of um, micrograms per cubic meter okay. of this particular par- particulate matter. And there was one apparent measurement like this past week of 969. And huh. is this a weather phenomenon or it's is a co- this a, like suddenly people are driving more cars phenomenon? Combination. Or? So it's obviously you have, you know, cars, buses, tuk-tuks, all the things you have on a deli street. But you also have crop burning in a lot of the neighboring um, area, the neighboring provinces. And so that's been kind of all of that sm- smoke has been coming over. And then you also just had Diwali. So that also added to it. And then just because of what the weather is like right now in Delhi, you're getting this like just mass of some of the worst air quality so we've ever seen. Does that mean that like walking down the street in Delhi is just like smoke in a pack? It, it really is. And we've seen this obviously in Shanghai. We've seen it in Beijing. We've seen it in Mexico City for decades. It's a real problem with many cities, and it's a problem which my home city of London like went through in the 19th century, and we fixed that problem. It is fixable, but somehow, globally, it's still getting worse. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> Felix, my turn or your turn? Um, which one of us is going? I'm going gonna, gonna to come out with my um, Anna Shemansky number, because, because it's 30. 30. 30 is the number of years in prison that you could be sentenced to if you accept the invitation of Venezuelan Vice President Tarek al Assaimi to enter into debt renegotiations. <laughs> um, so this, this guy um, basically has been alleged to run a cocaine smuggling yes, network. Yes. <laughs> and... As a cocaine smuggler, or as an alleged cocaine smuggler, um, if you are a Wall Street banker, you're not meant to be doing business with him. And yes, renegotiating your Venezuelan bonds counts as doing business with him. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see who turns up to these renegotiations. (laughs) 
Oh man, that's so good. Um, my number is sixty four percent, and uh, that's how much less roughly in taxes Donald Trump would pay under the House plan uh, compared to the current tax system, at least if you go by his 2005 tax return that mysteriously was leaked to Rachel Maddow way back when. So uh, this is an AMT thing? Uh, yeah, it's the AMT thing. Justin Fox at, at uh, Bloomberg basically noticed when Trump said, I would get killed. My, account, my accountant told me that this tax plan was going to kill me, yada, yada. It's a Justin Fox is like, there's no way this tax plan is going to kill you. <laughs> so he went and looked at Trump's old tax return, and which he basically only pays taxes because of the alternative minimum tax um and which would be repealed and plus there's a uh, as we have discussed a large uh break for pass-through uh, companies like the trump organization um so he, he he does pretty good in this okay i think that's it for us this week thank you for listening to sleep money the live show is coming up very very soon wednesday november the 15th Come to the Bell House in Brooklyn. We have James Truman and Francis Lamb. We're going to be talking about food, and it's going to be great. So the tickets for the live show are available at slate.com slash live, or I think they will be if there are any left. Go along to slate.com slash live and find out. And also, please leave us a voicemail for our December call-in show. The number for that is 347 nine six oh six three one four we will leave that phone number in the show notes um or if you must you can just email us as ever on slate money at slate.com and go listen to dear prudence because she's awesome she's comes out on tuesdays that's mallory ortberg normally with a remote guest co-host answering questions about toilet paper or nicknames or whatever weird crazy agony aunt questions that dear prudence gets on slate i love that column so check out the podcast on tuesdays uh jordan yes you, you were looking at me quizzically i was just if i were going to talk about like subjects that mallory ortberg you know answers questions on toilet paper was not the first time in mind it's <laughs> what, what's what's the top of your mind it's more like oh my sister-in-law stole my baby's name can i still be friends with her or um my i'm in love with both of my roommates can i uh try to make this relationship work or should i move like that's that's what i think of when i think of dear prudence but toilet paper my, yeah. my favorite one is my boyfriend like treats his cat too well men shouldn't treat cats too well should i break up with my boyfriend because he's too nice to his cat i will say though i once dated a guy who was obsessed with his cat it was a problem <laughs> it's an interesting question i'm just saying maybe we maybe we should call in to dear prudence and ask about um you know the the men and their cats many thanks to dan trader for producing this and we will talk to you next week on sleep money mm-hmm. 